0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, our Sabbath School From Home podcast, our attempt to uh, enjoy some community and some interesting ideas in these times, which are a little bit troubling. Uh, We're trying to track uh, closely, maybe not too closely, but uh, at least vaguely, related to the Seventh Day Adventist lesson quarterly. And the lesson this week is on a message worth sharing. Now, when you first read a message worth sharing. What sort of message did you suppose this lesson might be talking about? I'm going to uh, throw that question over to uh, my three friends, which are here with me. My name's Cameron, and I'm uh, talking to you now from Launceston in Tasmania.
1: G'day, I'm Ken. Uh, I'm talking from Launceston as well, although a different part of it.
2: Hello, this is uh, Luke, and I'm uh, back in Hong Kong again, amazingly enough.
3: And I'm Lachlan, and I'm in Sydney. I'll admit that when I read that title, I thought um, I thought it was talking about some broad strokes picture of the gospel, the story of salvation.
1: That that was certainly my first reaction to what would be the message that is worth sharing um, of Christ's. And I can see the connection. Uh, Christ's return is a uh, uh, a wonderful uh, message. Yeah. How and when and what that looks like. Uh, is something that uh, I have a little less certainty about than some pictures that I see painted at church sometimes. But
0: well, well, I I spend all my days working with uh, teenagers, and sharing something in today's context has has very particular associations for for a generation brought up in social media. Uh, they're always sharing everything, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, what are the messages that people seem to think are worth sharing on social media? Uh, two two observations on this one is that I was watching this afternoon a really great video of uh, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, an American comedian who is running a um, one of these late night talk show hosts and he had a show on on October 21st 2015, which if you're familiar with the back to the future time traveling uh, it's a film trilogy is the day the films were made in the 80s and they travel into the future. And um, so Kimmel's explaining this, he's saying, you know, this is the day that they were traveling into the future for. And then the lights go out and the the steam machines go and there's lights flashing and the soundtrack of the film starts playing and uh, a DeLorean, uh, which was their time-traveling vehicle, rolls out onto stage and the two actors hop out. And it's it's a really interesting, apart from everything else, a really interesting commentary on sort of time travel, a really interesting event because of course, uh, Michael J. Fox has Parkinson's now. And, the, you know, lots happened to those two actors in, since the the time of the filming. And they the, the two actors pretend that they've just arrived from the year 1985 and they ask Jimmy Kimmel to explain the future to them. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel starts to explain a few things to them and then he pulls out his phone to take a selfie and they say, what's this? Oh, this is a selfie. This is how we document. This is how we document our achievements. And Doc Brown, who's the scientist who's invented the time machine in supposedly according to the story, grabs the phone. He says, wow, this is a, this is a supercomputer. With this, f- astrophysicists could triangulate the coordinates of interstellar travel or something in real time. And Jimmy Kimmel says, uh, well, yeah, I guess you could do that, but mostly we use it for sending smiley faces to each other <laughs> uh, and pictures of cats falling off roofs.
1: Pictures of cats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so-
0: there's a there's another great song on that vein by uh, the Australian comedy music group Tripod, um, tracking the development of human achievement from the wheel to through basic machines to you know the, and the pinnacle of the achievement. The song is, goes through the progression. The pinnacle is a domestic internet router, um, a modem, a router, and you know now that we've reached this pinnacle, I can now finally watch a video of some idiot falling off the roof of his house into a swimming pool. Um, that's <laughs> That seems to be what people say is, is worth worth sharing. So my question that I'd like to bring to today's discussion, a very long way of getting there, is as we look at the themes in the lesson quarterly, this is not necessarily a measurement of whether or not it's a, it's a method, message worth saying, but I'd be just interested to know how many likes it would get. Mm. Uh, as Ken alluded, the lesson... Um, starts with the concept that we have a message worth sharing and immediately jumps down into our message about end times and like uh, like you i'm a little surprised that that not much space was given at least in this week's lesson to saying that a really uh, core part of the message worth sharing is, is the story of christ's first coming what the, what the his death and resurrection means uh, hopefully for for each of us um, individually and certainly for you know us collectively and everything it jumps straight into end times we have a me- message worth sharing uh, what makes it worth sharing what makes our sort of um, understanding um of end times worth sharing
3: yeah I mean the the obvious and and far too cynical answer is um we we have to justify it as worth sharing because it, somehow we've wrapped our identity up in it and, and so we sort of go in a line of circular logic saying it has to be worth sharing because that's what we're here to do. Um, that's, as I say, a little bit too cynical. I've heard
0: that explicitly stated, Locke. Um, sort of this idea that, that uh, the doctrines which are unique to Adventism cannot be let go of under any circumstance because it would compromise uh, the the reason for there being an Adventist church. and. One thing that, that my dad said to me several times is that it, it's not a very watertight logical argument. You know, you can have buildings that are unique, valuable buildings, but they don't have to be made out of a unique, valuable type of brick. They could have a unique or valuable history or purpose.
2: I would add to your dad's point, Cam, which is, of course, a very good one. Um, Is not worshipping God sufficient reason to have a church?
0: Oh, uh... <laughs>
2: Careful, Luke. Do you need a purpose <laughs> beyond beyond the obvious
1: one?
0: Um.
1: I, I'm going to be very blunt here, and perhaps a little too vulnerable. Um, one of the things that I've struggled with over a number of years uh, with being a Seventh Day Adventist is the focus on the Adventist part of the uh, the message, and and indeed. Uh, it's, it, it is what you say. I mean, if that's the identity, if you don't focus on that, then how is it that you can properly stay within the walls of a church that says this is the, uh, the focus, uh, and this is the critical and important focus. We have an end-time message, um, and uh, that's our reason for existence. Uh, to present that end-time message, Um, when I tend to find more value in my life in focusing on a walk with God today?
3: Mm. I think that that's a very interesting question. I suspect it's not going to be possible to give it a sufficiently valid answer just in this podcast episode, but perhaps we could try but the question about what's the use of or what's the purpose of um, an, a sort of an end-time apocalyptic focus made me immediately think of an Old Testament story that I think is well-known. And I suggest we turn there and, and have a look at it and then come back to your question, Ken, seeing if we may have uncovered any light that is helpful. And the story that I thought of was the story of Jonah Mm-hmm. who famously was commanded to travel to a a city called Nineveh and to preach of its coming destruction.
0: It's interesting, because God obviously thinks this is a, meth- uh, a message worth sharing. Jonah's not quite so sure at first, is he? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. Jonah really doesn't want to share it.
0: Um, which chapter are you thinking of, Lot? Like?
3: Well, the book of Jonah is not so long, but I suggest we focus on Jonah chapter 3, which is sort of in the storyline arc, uh, if not perhaps in the in the the sort of theological arc, Jonah chapter three is really the, the the corner of the story. It's after he's been trying to run away from God, it's after his episode with the large fish that swallows him, protects him from drowning in the sea, and then spits him up on the shore. So Jonah chapter 3 is only about 10 verses long. Why don't we read it all?
0: Very good. I'll start, and I'm reading from the NIV. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth.
1: When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the degree of the king and his nobles. Do
2: not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence.
3: Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it.
0: Oh dear. Mm. That's a bit unfortunate for Jonah. Well, no, it's not unfortunate. You know, it? Well, certainly. Jonah certainly thinks so. Is it unfortunate or is it super <laughs> well, fortunate? There's... No one ever enjoyed as much success preaching as he did.
1: Well, Jonah thought it was terrible. He was greatly displeased and became angry.
3: Well, if you think of it, we don't have a culture where we place as much emphasis on, key, on saving face. But if you think of it from a more um, face-saving sort of culture, Jonah, despite being incredibly successful as a preacher, has...
1: Has lost face because what he said would come to pass does not. So, as a prophet, indeed, he knew he knew it. He knew it would not, but he knew it would not right from the start, as it said. Because in four verse two, he said he prayed to the Lord, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to <laughs> flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger <laughs> and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Well, there's, there's now, O oh Lord, take away my yeah. life, for it's better for me to die than live." Really.
0: There's a couple of dimensions to that. <laughs> to that ken he's a very complex person um that statement where he's describing god's character is said in a spirit of resentment i'm fed i'm fed up with you god i'm absolutely fed up you're always forgiving people and this is coming this is coming from someone who who deliberately disobeyed god and ran away
1: (laughs) yeah
3: yeah and and was miraculously saved himself from a death at sea you would
2: think he'd have a, a more positive view of forgiveness.
0: Well, you'd think he'd have a bit more positive view of other people. So even when you read his prayer, and the way I was always told this story was that Jonah repented in the belly of the whale. Um, is not very repentant if you read the prayer in Jonah 2. And it takes him three days. I mean, that's a lot of sulking. Um, And, and the prayer the prayer is full of comments like this. I said, I've been finished from my sight and never looked to your holy temple, etc., etc. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. So he's comparing himself with, with pagans. And he's saying, basically, the pagans are missing out um, because they sacrifice to idols. Now, what's just happened is he's been on a boat full of pagans and and he's disobeyed God. And God sent a storm, and he knows it's his fault. And he's told the pagans that it's his fault. And he's told them that the way to fix this is for them to throw him overboard. But they resist to the last mm-hmm. minute. They even throw over all their goods. They lose all the income from that voyage and because they don't want to hurt an innocent man. Yes, very moral. Yeah, they're highly moral, and they're repentant, and they, they pray to Jonah's God and they are 10 times as good at as a, 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 a Bangard god as Jonah is. In fact, everything in this story is 10 times as good. The whale is 10 times as good. E- everything does mm. what God tells it to do, except for Jonah.
3: Yeah, I think we commented a few episodes ago, even the animals in this story, all of them, the whale, the animals in the city, which do not eat or drink and which are covered in sackcloth, even down to the worm in the last chapter that eats the plant, All of the animals are better at doing the will of God than Jonah is. And
0: the animals get the final word, the the last verse of the story, where God says to Jonah, but, you know, there's a lot of people in that city who can't tell their left hand from their right, and many cattle as well. On the the grounds of the cattle, shouldn't I spare the city? Mm. And this is, getting back to our discussion on Balaam, Jonah's really not benefiting from this comparison.
1: It is not true that Jonah was not obedient. In the end, he was obedient. Um, Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. It took him some time, uh, but he did do it. So in that sense, he was uh, reluctantly, uh, but nonetheless obedient completely in the end. Um, It wasn't his obedience that was the problem in the end. It wasn't even his theology that was the problem he's perfectly right about the nature of god it had more to do with his attitude i would
2: say it had to do with the lack of love because if he loved the ninevites he would be pleased that they were not destroyed
0: i i'm gonna question you a little bit ken i'm not convinced that jonah had many options in front of him <laughs> at that point after he's been after he's been spewed up by the whale I think he was pretty much resigned to the fact that this was this was something where God was, was <laughs> going to have it done. The, the, there's an interesting passage of verbs in the opening chapter. I, when I was at college, I did, at Avondale, I did a subject on the Bible as literature, and one of the passages that we studied was Jonah. And if you look at the verbs that, that talk about direction in chapter 1, they are all down. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, and he finds the ship, and after he gets aboard the ship, he goes down under the under the sailors uh, under the board, and has a sleep. He goes down below the deck. They pick him up, and they throw him down into the sea, and then he's down in the belly of the fish. And Jonah prays a prayer, and then the first thing that God says to Jonah is, "Get up." Mm. And there's a there's a reversal of direction inferred in the language. And I would say that if Jonah is harbouring this much resentment against the cities, he may have delivered the words of God, but I don't think he's taken the message to heart. Uh, He's obedient in a very very bare, minimal sense. He's, he's He's done what God told him to do and nothing more, and he's certainly not going to exert himself to the point of caring about these Ninevites.
1: Suggest that God has more trouble with his saints than with his sinners.
0: Well, if you're going to say in one sentence, what's a summary of the Bible, that would be a pretty good one. If you look at the nation of Israel, (laughs) um, honestly, one of the things I've got some colleagues that I've referred to before at work who are atheists, who are really nice people. And one of the things that they have not realized is that the Bible is incredibly irreverent in the way when it, when when referring to um, human religious structures and organizations, it's not irreverent referring to God, but talking about organized religion. The Bible doesn't ever paint a single picture of God's family coming together and, and having nothing go wrong.
1: I wonder whether or not I wonder whether or not the message that we preach, including come out of her, if that was obeyed, would God treat the world the same as he treated the Ninevites? Would he relent? Would he turn from his anger?
3: And would we be pleased if he did?
1: Yeah. Well, a message would have been proved wrong.
3: Yeah. You've gone exactly to the kernel of why my um, slightly quirky train of thought took me from an Adventist Sabbath School discussion on a message worth sharing about Revelation and our picture of eschatology to the utility of Jonah and his message in this story that we've just read. So I believe, as we read the story, that it's very clear that Jonah's message was worth sharing. It caused incredibly positive transformation throughout the entire city of Nineveh, across all of the power structures and socioeconomic levels, even down to the flocks of the animals. So it was a message worth sharing. But Jonah didn't resonate with the openness of that salvation and the forgiveness. So it wasn't worth it for Jonah. He didn't like having to 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 preach the message and he wished at the end of it, he said, I'd rather be dead, which is a pretty extreme sort of sulk. Um and I do have to admit, a little bit of self-reflection is is warranted here. The that joke about you know, the person getting to heaven and the the apostle uh, Peter, St. Peter is taking him around and giving him a tour of, of of all of the heavenly realms. And they they travel many places, but they get to one place. And clearly you can hear there are people inside the room. But Peter says, no, 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 we can't go in there. And the newcomer to heaven says, well, why can't we go in there? And Peter says, oh, those are the Adventists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> um, and, you know, are, are we, and I'm picking on us, we're Adventists. Are we, in our the way we approach our message of eschatology, almost like Jonah, do we relish the thought of all of the evildoers in the world getting their just desserts while we get to sit on our clouds?
0: Even if they're not evildoers, maybe all the non-Sabbath keepers.
3: Why, well, exactly. Exactly. Whatever we, you know, the, the mark of the beast, the Babylon,
1: the whatever it is. Time of troubles. I... It's only the non-Sabbath keepers at the very end of time because the non-Sabbath keepers now are okay. Uh, They haven't yet got the full message, but it will be at the very end of time, uh, those who keep the commandments at that point. That's when it will become a test. We haven't quite reached that point yet.
3: (laughs) I see. Right. Well, I just hope that God paints a sufficiently large billboard in the sky to announce when we transition into that era.
1: He's not been very good at billboards in the sky about those sorts of things. He's very good at sunrises and sunsets, and clouds yeah. and blue.
0: And and they are bill yeah. they are billboards guess... in the sky that announce a, a fairly universal message about God. I think. But my I word, think, they are. But I think one of the things that Adventist holds is that we're the billboard, aren't we?
3: Right. I, I yes. think that's
0: the idea. Now I've I've been writing notes of things to come back and talk about later. And if I don't talk about some of them now, I'm going to end up with a whole podcast of, um, <laughs> of things to come and talk about. So one of them is, can you and Locke, We're talking at the start that one of the reasons the lesson might have jumped into eschatology when it, a method, message worth sharing jump straight to revelation was because it's very tied up with the Adventist identity. And we do have a great focus on that message as being a core role A core part of our role. Jonah is obsessed with his identity. He is a God-fearing child of Israel. And these are pagan Assyrians. He's got a very clear sense of identity. And like I pulled out in his prayer, when he's comparing himself to the pagan sailors, they're on the out and he's on the in. And, And that is very clear in his mind. One of the things that Jonah is accused of is in... Being unable to let that go. Can't can't you realize the people in this city are people like you? Um, So that's one comment. Another is Jonah is very focused on the message God has given him. One of the problems is that God criticizes him for is that he is more focused on that message than he is on the people that he's delivering the message to. So there is a warning with this. And Locke, you mentioned just before as a sort of a a qualifying the discussion, you said, you know, we might as well talk about Seventh-day Adventists because we are Seventh-day Adventists. Surely one of the mandates of the Book of Jonah is uh, that we must be active in looking for ways that we can personally improve. Um, Jonah is set up as the sort of anti-hero of the story, and it's beautifully told, in a way to make Jonah look silly. And the reason he is silly is he never questions himself.
3: Mm, Yeah, I like that. One of the questions that the lesson asks is basically, what do you think of when you think of the book of Revelation? What comes to mind? Now, I'll admit that what we've been doing here is a slight uh, caricature in the sense that we've been sort of jumping in on, on the stereotypical traditional Adventist line, which is that when we think of Revelation... We think of the Mark of the Beast, Babylon, the Pope, uh, and and a number of other trains of thought that make us focus very much on the otherness of the non-true believers. In other words, we, we tend to read, in that caricature, we read Revelation with a focus on the Ninevites as being evil people, and that's very much the way Jonah's picture is. And I think that it's obviously true that a lot of Adventists... And, and at a lot of times, the, the official Adventist church has seen more of value in the book of Revelation. And even this week's lesson goes to great lengths to point out that Revelation, all of the different episodes in Revelation keep pointing back to Christ. And that is a really pleasant emphasis, and it's an important one to acknowledge. But it is true that there's a very persistent way in which framing our discussion in terms of the eternal destinies. Automatically, I think at times can lead to devaluing really important parts of the present that we should be paying more attention to. So Jonah falls into the trap of devaluing the very people he is saving uh, because he can't really bring himself to see
1: them with the eyes that God is seeing them. There's a little note in my in the side of my Bible next to this passage, um, and I have no idea where it came from, save that it's in my handwriting. Um, We want evil destroyed. God wants sinners saved.
2: I think there's something very encouraging about this story of Jonah. When you look at the, how to put it, you look at the implementation of God's plan, you know, something that was a part of my religious upbringing, was to always consider very carefully, and I don't think this is a bad thing, I think this is a good thing, to consider very carefully what God's plan was, you know, and what I should be doing to serve God's plan. Um, but what I do think is maybe a mistake when you consider that topic is to think in specific details, particular choices, is it the right choice or the wrong choice? Um, as opposed to values and character um and uh courage and love, um and how you treat other people in general terms, um what sort of person you are, um, as opposed to what's is specifically the right or wrong choice. Because what the story of Jonah shows us is that you can make ten thousand quote unquote wrong choices, uh, and you still end up in acting God's plan. Yeah. Uh, you might end up suffering a fair bit because of your choices, uh, but that doesn't change. I mean, if if you think about God as a strategist, he would be the best strategist conceivable, in which case there is no possible way you or I or anything we choose to do could seriously impact his plan because he's got a million different backup plans and ways it can go and all the rest of it, you know.
0: The question is whether we will be part of it in a a meaningful way, in a willing way.
2: Well, I think the story of Jonah also says that even if you're very unwilling, (laughs) you're a part of it, whether you want to or not. If the plan is encompassing all of the earth and the entirety of, of history and the story of salvation from the very beginning of creation to its ultimate conclusion, there is no possible way I'm starting to thump the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. There's no possible way to not be part of the plan, and and as somebody who wants to be part of the plan, I find that very encouraging.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jonah is part of God's plan. Uh, Jonah discovers it's not quite so easy to thwart God's plans as as he imagines at the start of the story. And yet in another sense, he's not God. Of, he's not part of God's plan in the sense that God is not a part of him. He's a begrudging. Part of God's plan, instead of a willing part of God's plan, and in terms of His will, He 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 does not really want to engage with with God, and, and you would have to imagine that this whole story, the events told in the story, are as much intended for Jonah's benefits as the benefit as the Ninevites. And you imagine God knocking, knocking, knocking. You know this idea from Revelation, that great passage. You know God's at the door knocking. God's knocking on Jonah's heart, and Jonah is pretty persistent. I knew you were forgiving God. I knew, I knew it was, um, and I don't want a bit of it.
3: Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast yeah, love. That's right. <laughs> as if that's something to complain about. Yeah, as if which,
1: it's- which, interesting, is what the king of Nineveh says, perhaps God is. Um, yeah, and Jonah so knows it. He, he says, perhaps God is, and Jonah knows it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but he's not
0: pleased so in a sense even though God ends up working through the circumstances of Daniel uh, of Jonah's choices uh, Jonah's not thrown himself into God's plan um, so there is still there is still whether we are part of God we can be part of God's plan in different senses and hopefully we want to be the willing participant I think that one of the things you you asked like what what do we read out of revelation? In addition to the traditional emphasis on identifying who's the beast and identifying this and identifying that and identifying, um, the the broad underlying theme that uh, God is at all times trying to reach people in many ways, and that we are part of a struggle, and that and that things are not always as they seem. Uh, this idea of this idea of our real struggle is against the spiritual powers. I think that that is a really valuable perspective, and and it's certainly one that Revelation paints in incredibly sort of graphic, technicolor, 3D, surround sound metaphors and images and pictures. So I think it, in that sense, it's a powerful book. I, I am reassured, even though I don't find Revelation particularly helpful for myself, I'm reassured by the discovery that many Christians have, particularly the Christians who were going through the sorts of persecutions that the early church was going through, Christians under trial, have read Revelation and 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 found in it a, a reassurance that God's in charge. And if it was only for those Christians in those times, that would warrant its inclusion in the Bible. So I think that there is genuinely a lot more in the book than the the sort of emphasis that we like to focus on.
3: Yeah, well, I would like to to draw that one step further. Um, Just a few minutes ago, you or Ken mentioned that there was a certain element in which the message Jonah was sent to proclaim to Nineveh was not just for the benefit of Nineveh, but it seems in the book of Jonah that that God is hoping that this experience can be of benefit, can be an experience of learning, of transformation for Jonah himself. And I wonder to myself, uh, with the Adventist church whether sometimes it would be worth us pondering, if if we have a particular attraction to and focus on uh, certain aspects of the book of Revelation and we think of that as being our special contribution to the world, are we making sure that we're also listening for the things that God might be wanting to say, especially to us as a result of that focus and attention that we that we are, are giving to, to this passage.
1: How would Jonah have been different if he had been happy that God was a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love? What would he have done differently?
2: He would have gone straight up. He would have preached. They would have reacted the same way and been spared. So none of the details not relating to Jonah would have changed. Um, but he would have saved himself a good deal
1: of suffering and time and he would have been happier afterwards. Yeah. He would have had the joy of salvation, not only his but of others.
0: We've commented mm. in, I think, the yeah. episode with Cornelius that God orchestrates, that was the passage where Peter went to Cornelius's household, and and that that situation was not just orchestrated for the salvation of Cornelius and his household. It was a pivotal moment in helping the church learn. Something. And we've actually picked this up several Mm. times. Uh, Balaam had a lot to learn. Uh, The early Testament church had a lot to learn. Jairus had a lot to learn. Uh, One of the themes that has come out of our discussion, and indeed from the scripture as a whole, is that you can't get to the point where you say, We have the truth, and you don't have the truth, and we'll share it with you. Now, uh, the message that Jonah is told to share it emerges, is not the truth. Because God, there's no qualifying. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say if you... uh,
2: That's an interesting point to think about. God
0: doesn't say, if you don't repent, the city will burn. He just says, it's going to go. Kaboom. And uh, it's not a truthful
3: message. Mm. Yeah. One thing that this makes me reflect on is an idea that i encountered in a in a book by Brian McLaren but actually he was quoting it from elsewhere so the idea goes way back to the call of abram and god essentially says leave your land and your father's house and i will make you into a great nation and god blesses abram but then says essentially so that through you i will be able to bless all nations and the idea is that god in all throughout the Bible, God is dealing at times with various remnants, various groups of people who are set aside or called out. And God's purpose of the remnant is always to be a vehicle of blessing God's blessing, more broadly distributed throughout the world. But often in the Bible, remnants get it wrong, and this was the this is the statement, which is that the greatest heresy is to assume that your status as a remnant means you are blessed as the unique recipient of God's um, particular blessing rather than that you are a participant in the distribution of God's blessing more broadly. And I think that's what's happening with Jonah. He feels, even as you, as you pointed out, Cam, in his prayer in the whale, he feels pretty self-righteous. I'm one of the good guys I'm doing the right thing, which of course is a little hard to take given that he's just deliberately, explicitly run away from God and gone the opposite direction. And his issue with the Ninevites seems to, seems to be that he's not willing to share his status as being one of God's beloved people with these citizens of Nineveh. And in that, I find quite a strong mirror to stand in front of as an Adventist, because we talk about remnants, we talk about being God's beloved people, we talk about following God's commandments. We find it pretty easy and tempting to fall into the trap of assuming that we are privileged as the specific recipients of a special blessing from God. And yet the Bible consistently is calling us, therefore, to focus instead on being agents of distributing and passing on and amplifying and magnifying God's blessing To the rest of the world.
2: Look, that's a really interesting way of looking at the Old Testament's blessings. Um, And it reminds me of what we talked about with Jesus' ministry. Very often, his words and deeds having a dual purpose they were of benefit to the recipient, they were also of some benefit to the observers, you know, or they had multiple benefits to them. It's actually a connection. You know, the idea that you know God's blessings come with an implicit uh, assumption that they will also be a blessing to others is a nice connection between the Old Testament God and the ministry of Jesus that I hadn't thought about before.
0: There's an idea that's developed in a book by Rabbi Sachs. In it, he explores the story of Israel, the, the person, Jacob, and how Jacob struggles with his brother Esau in the womb and his name means he clutches the heel which was a deceitful person in its strife and someone trying to get the mastery and of course this is how the story plays out because jacob tricks esau into his birthright and he imagines that there's going to be one person who gets his father's blessing He gets Esau's blessing. And Esau's blessing is a very Esau-like blessing. The blessing is, you know, you're going to have armies and be successful and rich and that sort of stuff. And Esau finds out that he's been tricked. He's furious. Jacob's told by his mum, hey, you better clear out. Before he goes, Isaac, his father, blesses Jacob again. And he gives Jacob the blessing for Jacob, which includes the identity as being God's chosen the blessing that's given to Abraham is was never intended to be passed on to Esau. Jacob didn't need to steal it because Isaac was always going to pass on to Jacob the blessing of Abraham. And that, that twist emerges. Jacob runs away. He becomes rich himself and he comes back. There's that mysterious account of him wrestling with God or with a person representing God who, who touches his hip and dislocates it. And from that Moment, his name is changed to Israel which means he struggles with God next morning he gets up, walks back to his brother Esau and he sends ahead of him flocks and when he meets Esau he bows down to Esau and all of this is in contradiction to the blessing that Jacob received from his father because the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob was that you will rule over your brothers this is not what was meant to be for Esau you'll rule over your brothers and you'll be rich And when Jacob meets Esau, he he doesn't rule over him. He prostrates himself. And he returns to Esau all these flocks, camels and sheep and donkeys and everything. Jacob is giving Esau back the blessing that he stole. And and Esau Mm. says, well, actually, do you know what? Um, After you left, Dad told me that all the blessings had gone with you and that I wasn't going to get anything. But guess what? That hasn't happened either. I'm actually quite rich myself and I have armies of men. In, in other words, the whole episode of Jacob stealing this blessing, that this whole idea of Jacob saying, I must have all the blessing, I need the blessing, is completely irrelevant. The blessing that God was going to give to Esau is given to Esau. And it's a long road for Jacob to discover that he doesn't need to steal it. He doesn't need to fight with Esau. Jacob is no longer the person who fights with Esau. He's the person who's, who struggles with God. So Jacob doesn't need to compare himself to Esau. Adventists don't need to compare themselves to Catholics. We don't need to compare ourselves to atheists. When we're trying to justify our standing before God, we get our standing before God directly from God. This is what it means to be spiritual children of Israel. We, str- we, we struggle directly with God. We, we, we don't have to play the games of making ourselves feel good by making other people look bad. We just we just don't have to do it. And, and obviously not all Adventists do do it, but there is a tendency in Adventism to uh, reassure ourselves by reminding us how much error there is present in other people's denominations.
2: The idea yeah. that there's a, a limited number of blessings mm. and that we have to somehow be jealous of, of them so that we can keep them and we have to reassure ourselves that we have them and that other people don't have them. Therefore, that's a really interesting view of that story, which which is absolutely true. Is that no, there isn't a limit to the blessings from God. And it's a again, very binary view. There's of the nothing world, you isn't can it? do, no matter how clever you think you are, to stop God from giving the blessings He was planning to give.
3: So that causes me to to have an idea for editing the title of the lesson for this week, which which is in its original form. A message worth sharing. And I think that I would like to change it to be a blessing worth sharing. and then a subtitle would be and a message worth pondering. And what I'm trying to get at there is the fact that sometimes we ought to stop and learn from our own yeah. our own messages a I, little bit.
0: I, I think so. Uh, I think I mean this is this theme that I referred to with Jacob and Esau is is very present with with Jonah. Jo- Jonah wants to feel good by reminding himself that the other people are, are not good. It, it, Jonah just doesn't want to own up to the fact that he is as much in need of this God who is slow to anger and quick to dish out graces than the Ninevites. He just doesn't want to admit it. It would be dreadful if we ever got to the point where we felt uncomfortable with the idea that we were in just as much need as the Roman Catholics.
1: Mm.
2: or Or that we would ever feel upset at God displaying mercy towards another
0: or or using another or achieving something important through another
2: you know there's a great C.S. Lewis statement on the and I don't remember in what book and I don't remember in what context but it, it, it's I it's on sort of what a lack of jealousy what genuine selfless love looks like and he describes it as you know, seeing somebody else achieve something or be blessed in some way um, and feeling as happy about that as if it had happened to yourself.
1: That's a, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it?
2: You know, what a wonderful state of mind that must be Yeah, uh, to be able to do that all the time. Mm.
0: Another idea of his, which, I, which I'd written down to comment on, was this idea in, in The Great Divorce, where there's the bust, that goes between hell and heaven. And one of the people who goes from hell up to heaven and doesn't like it there and catches the bus back is actually a theology professor. And the reason he doesn't like heaven is on earth, he was treated as an expert. And in heaven, people don't need theology lecturers because they have access to God. So he he discovers he's not needed and he's so furious at not being needed that he hops on the bus and goes back to hell where he has a really interesting discussion group running that meets weekly. Where where he can share all his wonderful knowledge.
2: That sounds like a a caution
1: for us, <laughs> and maybe a place to end. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, I think we need to finish. I've got a bus to catch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're running out of time. I think that normally we we finish these with a uh, with an observation with a summary statement. I think we should do something a bit different. I think we should think of a summary question. I guess it's not a summary then, but a, 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 what's the question that we should ask ourselves as we think about the message we have that's worth sharing? As we think about what it means to be a, a someone trying to to be one of God's people, we want we want God to be with. We want to be His representatives, and and what does the story of Jonah, um, you know, teach us about ourselves? And I'll, I might kick off my my question is. I'm still stuck on this idea of obedience. Jonah obeys God in a very in a very meager and mediocre sense. And we Adventists love the idea of obedience, that, that God has given clear directives and that we're going to obey him. And that's very much tied up with our view of end times. It's very much tied up with, with our view of Sabbath. Is it possible to take something like Christ's second coming and... Um, sabbath keeping and obey it with such a thin and mediocre level of engagement and obedience such a surface level uh like jonah does with god that means we're not actually really participating in what god wants done
3: Mm, that's good
1: one of the uh, questions uh, that has occurred to me throughout this discussion as a result of some of the statements is that we've made is putting these two propositions together. That God is a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. That's one proposition that comes out very clearly from this story of Jonah. Another proposition that seems to come out is that his will of demonstrating those Characteristics uh, is done no matter what, and even contrary to our will, we end up then close to an unconditional salvation of all. Why are we uncomfortable with that?
0: Maybe everyone except for Jonah. <laughs>
1: These,
2: these are good questions, and I don't have one to match. But I am sitting here, this is maybe a, This is tangential to our topics today, but maybe something we can touch on later. I'm sitting here wondering, what is it the animals are repenting for? Mm. And sh- surely doesn't an all-powerful God have the ability to punish at an individual level? Why must it be the whole very large city? Why not only those who deserve it?
3: Hmm. I was tempted to just uh, be slightly tongue-in-cheek and state that my question was, um, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish, which is the question posed by the king of Nineveh. But I think I think what, what I'm actually getting at there is the, the question I would like to ask is, are we sure that we're taking time to, ins- to, to keep our focus on God's steadfast love and gracious mercy and the slowness with which he approaches anger. Or are we often more keen to jump straight into a message that we want to share that puffs us up as being some especially worthy recipients of a particular blessing or a particular truth at the expense of those in the world around us. Mm. I think if we lose sight of that question, we're almost certainly going to be as lost in our picture of God and the way that impacts our engagement with the world as Jonah was. Hey, hey, hey,
2: questions only. No answers.
0: I do have one question to close with, and we've commented in the past that we uh, miss the involvement of Clancy um, and uh, that we're not a very diverse panel, uh, four blokes having a discussion, and nothing is going to starkly reveal uh, the biases present in this group than the comment that I'm about to make, which is uh, that it says that uh, it took three days for him to walk across Nineveh. You can walk across Sydney in three days. Nineveh, there was no city in the ancient world that took three days to walk across. Does this mean, uh, if it took him three days, that he had his wife with him shopping? <laughs> we'll leave things there. Um, as always, if anyone has any input or ideas, uh, you can email us on uh, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com There's obviously no need to email if you don't have ideas, but if you do, we'd be interested to hear them. And we do hope that you... Find blessing in our discussion. I certainly do. It's a, it's a bit of a haven for me at the end of the week to sit down and, and have this discussion with you, Locke and Luke and Ken. And hopefully it's a blessing to those people who can listen. And we hope that you all can join us again next week. Amen.